I'm here with Mike Benitez from the Merge newsletter to discuss this week's acquisition headlines. And so we're going to get right into it and highlight some of the stuff that he's been talking about as well. We'll just start with the future of the Afghan Air Force. From 2009 to 2011, the U.S. bought over 100 Mi-11 helicopters from the Russians, and they were sourced from their export arm, Rozo Boron Export. <laughs> and then seeing an opening, Congress had a good idea machine, which was to replace those with U.S.-produced UH-60 Blackhawks compared to operating and maintenance for the venerable Mi-17 from the Russians, the UH-60 was flying what you called a quantum computer powered by a flux capacitor with instruction manuals written in Klingon. As you might have figured by now, the Afghan Air Force is 100% reliant on contractor maintenance, and those contractors are being pulled out of the country. So <laughs> I think this is just another one of those. It almost, to one degree, it's pretty obvious, right? Like we shouldn't have expected the Afghans to be able to be able to support advanced equipment beyond their means. But then I almost wonder, to, is the same thing also happening in our own country with these high maintenance exquisite systems? Do you think there's also a parallel back in our country as well? I'll definitely think that there's a pathway. And so it's not really this comparable. So U.S., we might start with something that's contract logistics support or contract maintenance, but ultimately we want to wean that off, especially the combat capabilities to it's what we call blue suit maintenance. We want airmen working on air power type stuff to go project, uh, project forces and power. So uh, we definitely want military people doing military jobs. But when it gets into things like support aircraft, like pilot training and things like that, there's definitely opportunities to uh, leverage a, the, the commercial workforce to help us out. But when it gets to overseas, the Afghan Air Force, It'll be really interesting to see what happens as we move forward. And I think it's going to be an amazing opportunity for the Air Force in particular to lean into that problem and help, help them out with different ways to perform maintenance. And so telemaintenance has is, is been a, a thing that's been tossed around, especially with multifunctional airmen and the Air Force's uh, ACE concept that's still mostly a paper tiger. But there's definitely some opportunities to, to leverage that problem set and to get some resources and some people in the room to, to get after that problem. Yeah, definitely. One of the questions here, maybe, would the Afghans actually have been able to maintain the MIT as well? <laughs> or, or was any kind of Air Force probably beyond the means of the Afghans? I'll tell you, they, they were using all of that equipment for decades. When I went into Afghanistan in, in 2001, right after 9-11, there are Russian helicopters sitting on the flight line. And obviously there's no Russians there. So they had, there, there had been aircraft that had been used there for a generation. And it's interesting that our good idea was to replace it with equipment that they had never seen before, had no idea how to operate or sustain. And it was way too complex and arguably less capable than the equipment that they already had. That's a good point. Let's move on to the next one here on how expensive the E-8 J-STARS is. The FY22 budget proposal includes a request to retire four of the Air Force's E-8 J-STARS um, that the fleet currently services. And you're saying that it's actually long overdue. It's actually cost the Air Force $62 million per year to keep each one of these in service. And that works out to $170,000 per day, which is, as you were saying, about as much as a U.S. congressman makes in an entire year. There's one of the things that people often point to to keep these systems around is that the combatant commander have the demands. They have a big demand signal for these things. And to that, you said, prove it. The combatant commanders are always like demanding things. But what is the risk by not accepting it or not having it? And where are the alternatives? For too long, have the combatant commands asked for everything without having to justify it to anyone? So can you just give us a little bit of the backstory on, on the, the E-8 and uh, what capabilities it has and what's going on here? Yeah, so I'd say the, the E-8 is one of the, it's a platform that's stuck in the middle of a weird power dynamic that goes back to the Goldwater-Nichols Act. And so as the service, you are the, the capability provider and the combatant commanders are the capability user. And I don't think when we originally set that up, they anticipated that the combatant commanders would grow to have such uh, influence on the demands of the demand signals that are going to be put on the services to meet. And this kind of played out in particular with the Air Force over the past 30 years in the Middle East. 
So CENTCOM is, is probably the, the guiltiest one. They you know, ask for everything. And then if they only get half of what they ask for, that's better than nothing. And so there's a lot of, I call RFFs. So request for forces, anything, anytime something happens, everyone is always looking for an excuse to pull forces. And what people don't realize now, maybe it's, it's more uh, apparent now than before, but there's only so much to go around. And once you, you stack in priorities, it's not up to the Air Force, for instance, to go, hey, you're not getting this J-STARS. Sorry. Like it's not, we just can't do it because of budgets. That It doesn't happen like that. The combatant commander can just ask for all the J-STARS. And then as the force provider, the Air Force is on the hook to try to support that. Obviously, there's stuff that goes on between OSD, the Secretary of Defense, and the Joint Staff. But at the end of the day, it's a very strange uh, power dynamic. And it plays out in all of the, the congressional hearings where you hear about the combatant commander demands, uh, especially in ISR, which is all lumped together in one big category. Obviously, everyone wants more information to make better informed decisions. The opposite of that would be dumb, right? <laughs> so, so the E8 stuck in that no man's land. It's really important, though, to realize that there is a capability part of it, and then there's the control aspect. So the E8 is a platform, but ultimately it exists to do a mission. And so when we talk about like GMTI and moving that to space or, or a distributed aperture and network system, that's collecting information, which is great, but it still needs to go to the people who can do the battlefield command and control. And that's the other part I think that is often left out of the JSTARS discussion. And a lot of that part was being done on the aircraft or? Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, ABCCC, and I can't remember what all the C's stand for right now, but it's a it's a combined Army Air Force team that does ground control. So if you think an AWACS does the air-to-air control, the J-STARS, in theory, is doing large force movement and maneuver to contact for the Army. And that's the role that they were envisioned to play. It hasn't quite played out that way for over the history of the aircraft for a multitude of reasons. The world changed, the environment changed. They had issues in Kosovo just from intervening terrain, had a lot of blind spots. And, and there's some communication breakdowns. They have a lot of radios, so that's good. But really, the technology hasn't kept up, and it's kind of time to, to shift that to a new model. Yeah, so I wanted to get to this other... Here's an interesting quote, and let me know if there's any kind of relationship here. But <laughs> we're very concerned about latency. You need to be able to test that and give us a venue where we can test the latency-impacted error rate and target location error across long distances. And so this actually seemed to be, this is from the director of Orange Flag. I'd like you to give us a little intro into what Orange Flag is on a successful end-to-end test of an Air Force Link 16 data link pushed to the Army, actually. So that's why I brought it up, but um, can you unpack this a little bit? Yep. Okay. At the very top. So Orange Flag is part of what we call the Test Flag Enterprise. So we have Orange Flag, we have Emerald Flag, and we have Black Flag. So Orange Flag and Emerald Flag are run by developmental test, although we do participate as operational test. They are doing uh, multi-domain interoperability and synergies, experimentation, and they're looking at different kinds of concepts and how do we connect things. So very data-centric, a lot of flight test engineers and ops analysis that goes into that. Whereas Black Flag is led by operational test, and we do have some developmental tests that, that participate. That is more focused on some more mature systems and some mature operating concepts. And we're trying to validate and develop new tactics and integration concepts for the warfighter that will actually field to the warfighter in the near term. So we have some new to field or soon to field capabilities that maybe in the next two years, they'll hit the fleet. And so we'll put those through these large force scenarios with some test points that we're trying to gather to see what are the strengths and weaknesses and how do we make it a, a better product when we actually deliver it to the warfighter. So that's a test flag enterprise. Now back to the, the question about latency. So this is where we talk about system of systems and networks of networks and JADC2, ABMF, project convergence, project overmatch, and all these other uh, terms. Really what it comes down to is who needs what information when. And so in the context of orange flag and that quote, it really comes down to track quality. So there's three parts of that. The latency is one of them, but the first part is where is that thing? Whether it's an air vehicle or something on the ground or point of interest, anything, where is it? 
what is the uncertainty of where I think it is? So that would be your target location. And then lastly is the latency of the information that has arrived. So I could have the, the best information possible with absolute certainty of where that point was, but it, if it arrives at even five seconds outside of my, the systems that I have, their capabilities, like I can't really do anything with it. And so latency is an extremely important thing when we're talking about a lot of things moving very fast, traveling, shooting things that go very fast and hitting things that move very fast. So there's a lot of dynamics in latency. That makes sense. And, yeah, that makes sense. But tie it back to me, for me in terms of this in this whole enterprise. I guess we're canceling out the E8 or the E8 used to do a lot of the ground target indication, and that was done on board. And then they had certain ways of getting that information to either back to Air Force or to the Army itself. And if you're going to disaggregate that and you have a different approach, you need to solve some of these other issues that are still out there, right? That's right. And, and just to be clear, even JSTARS, even though everything was on this big monolithic platform, it had latency problems because a lot of the stuff wasn't automated. So it could collect information, but it still had to be manually uh, transferred from one system into another to push that out to someone else who could actually use it. So it's the whole system is pretty, it's in dire need of a retirement and there, there are better things out there. There's better ways of doing business. And so the Air Force needs to really get after that. So the next one we got here, a person at a DC think tank believes the Swiss government's decision to purchase the FAA reveals critical flaws in the U.S. Air Force's decision to buy the F-15EX and recommends that Congress direct an independent study. You, you're arguing here that it's missing some information that first, OSC CAPE ultimately makes these decisions, not the services, to CAPE is independent and objective by design. Three, there's already been several fighter or TAC air studies done in recent years. And four, this does not even include the six ongoing studies looking at the same thing. So what does the, I guess, the Swiss decision to buy the F-35 signal to you? Yeah. So I'll just say right now, the I, I think I may have misrepresented uh, that. And I, I never, <laughs> when I write the merge, I never want to pinpoint uh, anyone and throw someone under the bus. And so this one, I, I wrote it and actually this week will be, I'm going to unpack that a little bit more because the person that I, I wrote that about, I, it deserves an, a better discussion. But the fact of, the fact is it really comes down to cost per flying hour. That's what that discussion comes down to. There's about two dozen different metrics, about half variable, half fixed for costs that go into the cost per flying hour discussion. And there's five different types of cost per flying hours. And then you start piling on the types of dollars, if it's uh, constant your dollars or then your dollars and inflation and forecasting, it is, it's like statistics. You can make it say whatever you want to say, and it depends on the story that you want to tell. And so I'll, I'm going to unpack that a little bit more this weekend. And I definitely, I should have devoted some more space to unpack that a little bit. Just to be clear, I think you worked at OSD Cape at one point, didn't you? Yeah, I was a consultant there, but yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just like everyone in the building, uh, they're all trying to do the right thing. They don't get it right all the time. And ultimately we're all on the same team. Yeah. Expect more of this, uh, this week. So sign up for the merge if you haven't. There you go. You can get the little plug in there. I was, it is interesting though, because I was pretty surprised actually over the past couple of years at how sharply the decrease in the ONS cost for the FAA has been quoted as. And I was trying to figure that out just with a simple regression where it might end up. And potentially it does get into the high 20s cost per flying hour. Obviously all that's open-ended, but I guess, is that some of their, I guess their gripe that, hey, these costs... They said it might be at a higher cost, which makes it look unaffordable. But if it's $10,000 per flying hour less, then all of a sudden things are you know rosy and sunshine. Yeah, I know it's interesting is the F-15EX is you know, the best thing we have for costing analysis off of it is the F-15E because it, it has the same, it's got two cockpits of avionics to sustain. It's got the conformal fuel tanks. It has the, it can do the multi-role mission. It has the same avionics, electronic warfare, radar, everything. And so there's probably a good 20 years of cost data off of the F-15E program that you could use to do some cost forecasting for the EX. And it's interesting that publicly, I haven't seen a whole lot that tries to compare those two to say, hey, this is like this. So let's use this as a baseline. It's just like the problem with the F-35 early on, there's not enough data points to get good data. And so you need time and you need quantity uh, to get data to then go back and, and like you said, do the regression and figure out what happened and where it's, where the pain points are to then start attacking the cost of the program. But like I say, cost per flying hour depends on how you bin it. 
part of the argument is little things like targeting pop is not included in the price of a fourth gen fighter because it's its own ATP program that funds that. And we share the equipment across all of the fighters and the bombers. And so a, a targeting pod may have been bought for an F-16, but right now it's probably at Barksdale flying on a B-52. Whereas on the F-35 program, the, the targeting sensor is built into the aircraft. And so they're not sharing that across any other platform. And so therefore it's built into the cost of the aircraft. And so that obviously does have a, a, a price uh, to pay for it. But at the end of the day, the Air Force has already bought its thousand or so targeting pods. We're not buying more. We have them. And so it's just sustaining them and, and, and upgrading them. The same thing can be said for things like Alice. And so if it's included in the cost per flying hour, depending on how which way you compute it, it could change the cost per flying hour significantly. Waterfall. Yeah, I guess it's not just a matter of cost per flying hour. And as a cost analyst, I know that the, the vagaries of cost accounting mean that there's no generally acceptable cost per flying hour term. There's not just like one number that exists in objectivity. That is, that is it. But it's not just that. It's also, I guess, the differentiation in terms of what they do. Because it's not like these things are just perfect substitutes one for another. It seemed like the Swiss chose the F5 because of networking. And maybe that makes sense for their kind of internal mission that they need. But then the F15, I think we talked about this when we had you on uh, a couple months ago, right? Like it has more range capacity and all that kind of stuff for the F15. So they also have different uses. It doesn't, just because one has a cheaper or not cheaper cost per flying hour doesn't invalidate the utility of the other for its own hedging rate or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah, the it goes into force design. And what do you need to build the force that you want to execute your national strategy? And that's why when you look at across the allies in the entire world, how many countries have bombers? One, <laughs> us. The other NATO doesn't care so much about bombers because that they're already in the fight for the for their uh, geographic area of interest. We're fighting an away game, and so we put a lot of money into power projection. Uh, so, yeah, what is the needs of our partners is it varies quite a bit. Yeah, let's let's stick with F thirty five here. The Pentagon doubles F thirty five agile software update timeline from six months to twelve months to cut down on test escapes or flaws that reach the warfighter. Is it what is the signal to you? Yeah, so it, it it has some problems. That's what it signals to me. But there is hope. There are some innovative concepts that I'm very familiar with that we grassroots that we've grown that we're in the final stages of getting established as a program of record that would actually help the F-35 program fix this problem. So we've been working on what's called crowdsource flight data for about three years, maybe four years in the wing where I work. And it basically turns all of the operational FFs into data collectors. And that data, when they go fly at an ops unit, then feeds back to the test unit to see what is actually going on in the background with the software, as far as uh, software stability, overloading, and what's actually stressing the system. And then we can actually see the data as it's going across the data buses. And so that's what that's about, is we can actually monitor the fleet after we deploy the code which is something that does not exist right now, unfortunately. And then for all the software people out there, you guys are probably going crazy. What do you mean? You have no idea what's going on with your, your ops fleet when you deploy your code. That's correct. And so it's, it is disconnected. And part of agile software development is having that feedback loop. And so we have been putting a lot of time and effort into doing it with F35. And if we can do it with F35, we're pretty convinced we can do it with all of the other platforms of interest that we're looking at. So F35 is just the first one. Is that problem a CONUS, OCONUS thing, or is it like even on CONUS? Oh, it's, it's even at CONUS. And so we'll have, uh, we have test F-35s that have certain boxes and wires to collect certain types of data that's running on the background. And then our operational F-35s don't have that. And not that we need our ops fleet to be uh, test jets with orange wires and everything, but we have a box that's like the size of a shoebox and it plugs into the jet. And it basically collects that data in the background and the ops, the maintainers and the pilots don't have to worry about it. It's going on in the background and there's a, a small detachment there of a data scientist that would collect it and then push that back through a, a server network that we've, that we've built. So it's, uh, it, I'd say it's nascent, but it's, we're right at min viable product, ready to scale. And we're waiting for the Air Force to sign the, uh, the final paperwork to make it a program of record so we can actually fund it and get it off the ground. So until we do something like that, 
you're not going to see anything better coming out of, of any of the software programs for aircraft. Ooh, here's to getting a program of record out of that. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. And it's weird that it has to be its own program of record. I guess everyone's, we just need more money, right? <laughs> All the money's going somewhere else. So if you want to do that. You know, so what's interesting is uh, this program's actually been cited. Uh, J-Pose is uh, throwing some money at it to match some funding that we've thrown at it as a service and as a wing. And then Congress actually is, is tracking it. It's been in a couple of GAO reports and some recommendations. And so everyone knows what it's, uh, what it can do. And the reason why that we actually didn't want to put it inside of the F-35 program is because this is not an F-35 problem. It's an everyone problem. And so by, by resourcing it as its own entity, it, it has some cross-cutting uh, capabilities, especially when you get into multi-level security and integrating different programs and platforms together to do some higher level analysis. That's really where, we're, where we want to go, our utopia. But first things first, we need to get a feedback loop to code that we deploy so we can iterate on it and fix it and keep going so we can cut down on test escapes. Yeah, that's just. I think that just highlights the fact that a lot of costs are like these indirect overhead or enterprise costs. And it's just the Department of Defense finds it hard to fund those outside of a single program context. And, and get the amount of money needed to resource them. So hopefully that's something that will be worked on here uh, in the near yeah, future. Yeah, it's, it's huh? interesting is that I think when you say like a platform, hey, it's a carrier or here it's a fighter jet. People are like, yeah, I understand what that is. But when you start talking about these concepts that are not, it's not something you can go to an air show and look at. It's a lot harder to to get people to to want to pay attention long enough to to get the aha moment when it finally clicks. No, we need that. This isn't a, this isn't a nice to have, it's a need that. There's a couple of ways that the Pentagon is looking at solving that. So I'll just start with one here. The Pentagon unveils plans for a unified innovation fund to promote experimentation. Details are light on the proposed rapid defense experimentation reserve or the Raider, but the gist of the idea is to promote jointness by applying some fiscal in the small accounts of connective tissue that support that supposedly tie the countless service-centric experiments and good idea fairies together. That was a lot, but basically just saying, hey, there's a new kind of pot of money that can be agilely directed to these joint warfare needs. And maybe what you were talking there in terms of deployment of software to aircraft might be a joint service issue, even if it is just being tackled by the Air Force right now. But what I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the Raider Fund. Yeah. So backing that up. So the Air Force has a program called the Squadron Innovation Fund, and it was originally kind of penny packet to each squadron to, to get a little bit of money to try to do innovative things. Uh, the problem with it is that it's penny packeted around the, the whole Air Force. So no one has enough money to do anything that's really big lift, big win. And some units have then aggregated that up at the wing. And so we could deploy more money and so instead of having a $10,000 limit that a squadron commander could try to get after something, now we have, you know, $200,000. And so not everyone needs that, you know, $10,000 to, you know, buy office furniture because that's not innovation, but to actually get after some bigger proposals. So this year, the chief of staff, so this is the Air Force side, the chief of staff actually held back some money out of that budget for himself. And the problem was that he would go around and see all these problems, but he has no, he has no money to fix it. So that he has a holdback fund. It's called the Chief of Staff's Momentum Fund. And this is the joint version of that is how I, I interpret it. So the, yeah, so the Air Force has this and they have a couple million dollars in a pot and they take proposals and they score them and they figure out here's what we're going to fund. Here's why and who's accountable for it. And it's executable too, by the way. So this is the joint version of that. Now I'll tell you, I actually have a couple of emails that's already came down from the Pentagon about solicitation uh, for proposals for this. I just haven't read the email yet. That's one of my things to do this week is to actually open that email and figure out what it is. And there's a deadline to submit some ideas uh, that are going at. So I'll say that news travels fast. I hit the press and within, I think uh, a week or two, it's, it already hit my work email. Things are happening, more to follow on that. Yeah, it always seems like that kind of petitioning to the higher ups for it, for these kinds of funds is like self-defeating to the purpose of it. I always, my, my recommendation on these types of funds is just allocate them to a place where it makes sense and someone that has the responsibility and need to get something done. Yeah, it's one of the problems the Air Force in particular has is there's not really a unit that's charged with deploying that capital and being accountable for it. It's just given out to everyone and follow your heart. There's more to follow on that. It ties into my, my battle lab initiative that I've, that I wrote an article on a few months ago. So more. Any, any updates on the battle lab idea, any track? 
nothing I can share right now. So we'll see. We'll see. I'll say that there are conversations going on, but I can't comment on that publicly. <laughs> All right, cool. So another one here on the kind of interlinkages, the Air Force continues to refine its plan for ABMS, but still offers no real insight as to what the master plan is. The good news is it appears that they are dropping the one branding moniker from the demo kit, which was more confusing and distraction and distracting than helpful. The first hardware to field will be fifth generation fighter whispering KC-46 communication pod. <laughs> so there's a communication pod. They're going to put it on the KC-46 and it's supposed to be able to communicate with fifth gen fighters without supposedly giving up their location. And they're calling this capability release one. We've written skeptically about this pod idea before because the top line talking points and press releases don't reveal anything that cannot already be done without the pod. So what's your questions here? What's like, how is it happening already or what's the issue and how is it happening already? And why are you skeptical of this trajectory? Yeah. So, so to be clear, the F-22 and the F-35 can, can share information. Okay. The current fielded F-22 can receive link 16 and the F-35 can transmit link 16. The problem with F, we have them in tests that are link 16 transmit. That capability will be going out to the fleet in the next uh, year or so. The problem is that the LPI waveforms, so low probability of intercept. There you go. Thank you. So the LPI data link waveforms between the F and the F5 are different, dramatically different, and the networks are set up different. And so they're not, they can't actually join each other's network. Now, I would argue that you probably don't want them on the same network at some times, and sometimes you do, uh, depending on how you want the, what kind of data you're looking for and how you want to get it. And so it gets into the, some really nuances about how each one of those data link networks uh, works and its capabilities and limitations. But I will tell you that when you get to, oh, we can't get data off the F-22, we've been getting data off the F-22 for about 13 years of different experiments like this, where we've put pods or translators on pods, or we've flown aircraft with translating equipment to join an F-22 network, take the data, and then re and push out the network to, to Link 16 participants. So your legacy kind of mesh network. So this isn't necessarily new. It doesn't really provide insights of what they're doing that's different. And there's probably a good reason they don't want to tell anyone. But it's really interesting when you look at the, the talking points and press releases, it really doesn't tell you anything whatsoever that really we haven't already done again for the past like 12 years, 13 years or so. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. It seemed like ABMS was doing a million things and now they're trying to signal that they're doing one thing and they'll execute it and, and get it fielded. Um, yeah. And now you're saying that thing that's just, Hey, this is a low lift. So let's, let's just, let's put some points on the board. And I think when it started out with everyone's trying to get up to bat and hit a home run with the, with those demos that they were doing, which really didn't have any transition pathways or a way forward. They were just demonstrations to demonstrate, but now they're like, Hey, we need to let's lay down some bunts and get some people on base. Uh, so maybe that's what this is. Yeah. The transition thing is a problem everywhere. So you also brought up the golden horde, which we talked about a, a few weeks ago as well. It looks like the golden horde, which is of course, they're trying to network together a bunch of auto autonomous weapon systems. So like loitering munitions. And you call it basically a collaborative seeker algorithm program that turns existing guided weapons into networked autonomous teams. And so they demonstrate this thing out. And then you say, AFRO looks like a victim of its own success. It designated Golden Horde a vanguard program, conducted a vendor, contracted a vendor to develop the tech, and then the product worked as advertised, but AFRL appears caught off guard and unsure what to do with it. They're not transitioning it to a, a program of record. So this thing seems to be pervasive. There's tons of interesting experiments. And maybe is that what was going on potentially with the F-22, F-35? There's just like all these kind of interesting things. And it's just, it never got integrated into the force. Well, so Golden Horde's interesting because it was designated a Vanguard program, which is like one of their priorities, which is, it's something that this is very important. It actually was very successful the last test actually went off after they'd already cut the funding. So they'd already decided they were not, they were going to walk away from the, the program, but they had already contracted the demo. So they finished and, and they paid for the range. They went and did the tests and everything worked out great. The first one didn't, but the second one was a success. 
but it's funny that if it's a Vanguard program and it worked, why stop? It's like, I get what they're doing now, which is, Hey, if this one company could do it, it wasn't that hard. There's probably other people who can do it and throughout some competition, we'll get a better product. And I hope that behind the scenes, they transition to uh, basically building the arena for the algorithms to fight each other and made the best product win instead of trying to do the legacy thing, which is, Hey, we're going to do some R and D figure out the, the tech solution for this and then transition it. It's one of those, it's great that they figured something out. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see what they do with this, this approach to getting capabilities to the warfighter. AFRL has uh, historically not been very good at that. I think I remember seeing a, hearing a general a few years ago saying it's 90, 96% failure. Uh, so, you know, if you're counting AFRL to, to solve a problem for the warfighter, it's you better spread your bets around a little bit. And so maybe that's what they're trying to do with Golden Horde now. Yeah. Yeah. We did hear about, I think it was called the Coliseum or something like that, where yeah, they would test it. these things out. Yeah. Maybe that will be another program, but yeah, eventually it's got to transition into a program office. It looks like Skyborg has more or less gotten to that place where it's going to be like a program of record, but Golden Horde was a Vanguard program, but hasn't really have, had that same emphasis. It's probably not as big of a, an effort in terms of dollars either. So maybe yeah. it's stuck in that middle ground where it's hard to find money for something that's, I just need like 20 to $50 million for something. That's right. Yeah. You could take some money out of a program that's struggling a little bit and put it in something where you can get some return on your investment. But yeah. So we'll see what happens at Golden Horde. Let's move on to the Army. Really big DLS Army awards Bradley replacement contracts for OMFV from breaking defense. And so the Army awarded contracts up to nearly $300 million to five companies for the optionally manned fighting vehicle. With respect to its role in the Pacific, Army officials pointed to America's last major conflict in the World War II as proof that no military can prevail without the protection and firepower armored vehicles offer. Flamethrowers and tanks were crucial in taking Iwo Jima, for example. <laughs> so here's the, the battle of roles and missions quietly seeping through, of course, um, yep. the media. Of course. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess the big question here is, are they survivable in this era of cheap missiles and drones? World War II was a long time ago, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, an, it's a very interesting stream of logic that quote goes through. And that's one consecutive quote, right? It wasn't like two or three people throwing out weird talking points. It was uh, so an optional yeah. man fighting vehicle today because World War II, because flamethrowers and tanks for Iwo Jima. Wow. That's uh, I guess they're supposing we will have something like island hopping. They're talking about island hopping the F-35. So I guess that's the trendy thing. So might as well look back to the last time we did it. <laughs> island hopping a, an optionally man fighting vehicle. And I, would, I would back that up and go, how are they going to deploy and get there? Uh, that's probably one of the bigger problems is how do we actually mobilize and deploy to then employ? Whereas over the over, you know, conflict for the past 50 years, we've had the luxury of being able to stage our equipment, put it on rails, put it on ships, transit unopposed, get it to where it's going, unpack it, build up a, a, a steel mountain, and then get our logistics in order and then get after it. None of that's going to happen in, in, in some of these scenarios that people are talking about for some of these high-end fights. I do appreciate, though, the fact that they're going after the, op they're going the optionally manned uh, fighting, fighting route. So it could be manned, it could be unmanned. It'll be curious, and I'm not too familiar with the program, but if, if that means that it's optionally manned from the driving and navigation uh, standpoint or the fighting standpoint as well. Do you know? That's actually a really good question because no one has, I don't think anybody's really been given the okay to just use autonomous deployment of weapon systems yet from a platform is yep. my understanding. So, so I'm curious to see if it's, it could be optionally manned, but remote activated or remote controlled. And so you could have maybe one of these vehicles is controlling nine or 10 that are optionally manned, but it's ultimately being controlled by one that's manned. So I think the concepts, we flushed the concepts out and I think you'll see where the capabilities and the opportunities are in this program. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we'll see. It's going to be interesting in terms of, I don't think we're really going to be able to break so much that like one third, one third, one third, but then it will the army be able to get everything at once. OMFV and FVL and the rest. So I want, want to move on to this interesting one and get your, your viewpoint here uh, with all three Gunsmoke J satellites on orbit. The army is ready to test space 
based targeting from Defense News. In a demonstration last fall, the Army was able to show that it could take images from satellites on orbit down to Earth, process them with artificial intelligence to find threats, and deliver targeting data to weapon systems in about 20 seconds. Gunsmoke J will complete a number of on-orbit demonstrations in 2021, culminating in a military utility assessment. Gunsmoke J will then be transitioned to an Army program of record. So it looks like, you know, Gunsmoke J is these kind of CubeSats, they got at least three of them up there, which gives them some ability to, to do some targeting. And it seems like this is the Army's effort here to stay relevant in, in the Pacific fight. If I have long range fires, then I'm going to need some way of targeting. And that's going to be done through kind of space-based assets. But then we also have the Space Force and it's not really clear. It seems like this is an Army program of record and not a Space Force program of record um, in a joint war fighting concept. So I wonder... As an Air Force guy, what's your view here on the Army kind of uh, muscling in on that territory? God bless the Army. I'll tell you what, <laughs> that is great. I was talking to someone just the other day about this. This is the best thing that could have ever happened is the Army got involved uh, because now that the Army got involved, the Space Force actually came out and said, hey, we, we might actually want to get into that tactical imagery, tactical info mission set because the Space Force is not in that. Uh, the NRO is pitched in and said, so there's a little bit of a food fight, I think, going on policy-wise of who's supposed to be doing that. And at the end of the day, if the NRO doesn't want anyone else doing it, then they should probably start doing it because it's not happening. And if the army can fix the glitch in the matrix here, then that kind of opens the door for a whole bunch of other things that the Air Force has been trying to do for a long time that's failed kind of over and over again as to how do we connect in near real time the collection that's going on in space to the people on the ground who need that information. And it'll be really curious to see what happens with this program. I've actually, I've been tracking this one for a while because I think it's one of the more, uh, when you get to the second, third order effects of this initiative, it's way bigger than the army and it's way bigger than just some, just some imagery. So we get into space-based uh, GMTI, AMTI, all kinds of other things. We look at latency over ranges and a whole host of capabilities and, and problem sets that we we need to, to get after. This is the beginning of a good thing, in my opinion. And I think the Navy recently transitioned all of the their space capabilities over to the Space Force probably two months ago. I want to say it was about 15 or so different capabilities they had in space. I want to say that the Army is going to be giving this to the Space Force at some point, along with the rest of their, their kit in space. And they, they can keep developing it all they want. If they give it to the Space Force, we'll just change the change the logo on the side of the box and we'll be off in the races. Yeah, I guess that's, that's one of my fears of centralizing a lot of this stuff as well, is that different services have different viewpoints and maybe there is something that is being undervalued or neglected by one service that the other, which has an overlapping responsibility, might want to go tackle. Yeah, then, no, I, <laughs> I love it. I love it. So it's, it's interesting. And I guess when one service fear, like, I think, yeah, you're right. Both of them, they're already transferring a lot of their units, like, Army and Navy personnel are actually becoming Space Force folks now. And so I think that's overall pretty good, but we'll go ahead and see what that kind of integration looks like. But the Navy definitely maybe doesn't feel as cornered by this because everyone's talking about growing the ship fleet or the ship, the number of ships, whereas the Army is, we need more roles and responsibilities and missions. Anyway, it's good to see that there's some successes and we'll see. If it gets transitioned, we'll go under the Navy here. Guild Day, the budget request supports future fleet vision, even if it's a smaller fleet. If our top line stays the same or decreases, we're going to see a declining fleet in terms of capacity. If we take a look at the fact that 60% of our budget is for manpower, for operations and for maintenance, and those costs are increasing on an annual basis of at about almost 2.5% above inflation, that's going to eat away at our ability to grow capacity that will ever approach above 300 ships based on when we're funded right now. It seems like the Navy's got the same problem as the Air Force. All my costs are growing much faster than inflation. So if you actually want me to expand, I'm going to have to do something completely new or you just have to fund me way above inflation. Yeah, I think that the Navy, it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the next five years at the Navy. They're, they've gone through a, I don't want to say identity crisis, but definitely they've gone from like idle to AB to idle AB. They're moving the throttles back and forth in their fleet size construct. And that the whole 355, that talking point. And it, it's really interesting to see because when you look at the fleet size, that how they measure their fleets and the, how they report it to Congress, which frames all of their talking points, 
is a one-dimensional metric. It only has a certain types of ships and certain types of missions of certain types of ships that are in that bucket that count. The Navy has more than 300 ships, like it does. It's just not the 300 that they're counting. And so it's really interesting to see what happens. And that's been around since the 80s, I'm pretty sure. And they change it every few years. But the, like right now, the fleet size, they don't count unmanned ships. Like look at how many unmanned programs they have. At some point, you're going to say, hey, if we have to, if we had a new build from scratch fleet design, what would it look like? And it, may, it might not be, we need you know, eight carriers or 10 carriers. It might mean, hey, we need more uh, flat decks so we can do like lily pad F-35C operations. And that's probably one of the more innovative things that they have, concepts they have going on. Or the DARPA program, Ghost Fleet Overlord. So th- that is a, a, a trans-specific unmanned capability. Uh, and I know before they haven't historically counted unmanned ships, whether it's surface or subsurface, because in general, they originate from a manned platform and that is counted. And so now as we get these new capabilities that can, can deploy and persist for long periods of time, it really opens a discussion back up of what, what should we be counting and what kind of capabilities and effects can they deliver? And really when they start providing that kind of value, I think it, it really should be a part of the conversation. Yeah, they were talking, it was 355, and then it got up to 500 or more in Battle Force 2045. That was their counting unmanned ships. Unmanned, which... yeah, it was like 150 <laughs> unmanned ships. That's right. Like that. so you, when you and now they cut counting. it all the way back down. They're like, we, won't right. even, we can't even be at 300. That's they, right. They, yeah, they really are pulling that like forward and backwards on us a lot, huh? Like, yeah, <laughs> so I, I think we need to see that their uh, battle fleet design stabilize, and then they'll come up with some new uh, talking points. Yeah, but the poor guys that have to defend the budget, right? Yeah, like, it's, yeah, it's a uh, like we defend the budget. It doesn't do what we want it to do, but it does what we want it to do. That's right. <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, so next one we got here: Air Force rethinks position navigation and timing. PNT AFRL is well. Here's another AFRL thing: is <laughs> adapting open software architectures with existing PNT technologies like vision navigation. Signals of Opportunity and Magnetic Anomaly Navigation, MAGNEV. He explained that the sorties successfully demonstrated that fused versions of these PNT technologies could perform without reconfig- with a reconfigure Agile pod. So looks like here's a solution to GPS-denied environments where you can use these like visual magnetic anomaly, which is I'm pretty stoked on. We'll see if it works. And fuse those together and apparently get more accurate readings using multiple sources, then that could solve some problems. So looks like that should be something DOD should be all in on in terms of funding and figuring out because we know GPS will be not the most survivable thing, even with M code. Yeah. So what I'll say is I can't even keep track of how many different PNT programs we've had. This is just a sliver. There's been like hundreds of PNT programs for GPS alternatives. None of them have transitioned. It's not because it didn't work. It's because it didn't transition. And that's why we don't have them. So none of these these problems, most of them have been solved before in other programs. So these are not hard problems. And they will continue to resolve the same problems over and over. (laughs) Okay. Maybe it's not that hard. There's one opinion. So the next one we got, and this I'll I'll be interested in this one as well. Russia's new SU-75 checkmate promises a lot. Can it deliver? One of the chief priorities for the SU-75, which of course is Russia's new uh, stealth fit, or at least fifth gen fighter, they're calling it. Today, there is no single engine fifth gen fighter available at a reasonable price. The unit cost that has been associated with the aircraft SU-75 is 25 to 30 million, which is the price point that the design team thinks will interest their primary target customers. Uh, To date, the program is financed with company funds and there is no government support at present. In the meantime, there are conversations ongoing with potential export buyers, but Russia's composite industry is not really so great for low radar cross-section. They use more labor-intensive coatings. Digital integration and sensors also seems to be an issue here. So anything to be worried about with this? It seems like uh, it's been the early stages and still a little bit of a pipe dream. Yeah, so this is the equivalent of if we had a air show here or, a, or a, an air power symposium like we have in the DC every year and, and say, pick your defense contractor. They, at this, they unveiled a, what looks like a brand new aircraft that no one's ever seen before. 
the military didn't ask for that. It's them doing uh, their own, you know, propaganda and marketing with a what I would consider a min viable product. Has it even flown? What can it actually do? The price uh, at that price point it probably doesn't include sensors, engines, a cockpit, yeah, things like that. When you get into the the actual hard part of designing an aircraft, uh, a lot of that comes into the sustainment aspect as well. So you could build something, but if you can't keep it flying and build it in a way that's it's easy to sustain for the average you know, maintainer, it's not going to, it's, it's going to stay at an air show and look good sitting on the tarmac. Uh, so this is not, nothing to be concerned about. Yeah. The, I, I did learn though, that the reason the U the U S kind of allowed the UAE to get in on the F 35 was because they were thinking about becoming partners in this program. I don't uh, know. I think that had the more to do with Israel actually, because there's a, uh, we have no, Israel was pissed. <laughs> Israel did not want that to happen. <laughs> yeah, but there are some, there's warming relations between those two. And my understanding was to get that deal. They had to, Israel had to agree for the UAE for that. Yeah, that, that's the way I understood it. And that's because of the qualitative military edge legislation that uh, Congress has written for Israel, which is why we give them preferred first right refusal on some weapon systems. Cool. So here's an interesting one. Raytheon CEO says speed trumps stealth in hypersonic weapons era. We've talked about stealth for the last 30 years, but speed trumps stealth when you're talking about something that can go up to Mach 20, which is about 17,000 miles an hour. The ability to defend against hypersonic is a huge is the huge market. <laughs> so it looks like Raytheon, that also makes sense. Raytheon doesn't build uh, stealth aircraft. This is <laughs> so, true. But what do you think about, about that, that statement? Because I think you also were saying, like, at least for the future of aircraft, is stealth as big as some of these other attributes that aircraft or other munitions might need? Yeah, so here's what I'll say. I'll keep at the top line here between the speed and stealth. Stealth, if you solve the problem at range, which is, hey, I just want to know if it's coming, that's a different problem than closing a kill chain on that stealth vehicle. Speed is something that's orders of magnitude harder to solve because it attacks your decision-making process. That is orders of magnitude harder to, to fix and speed up than to detecting stealth platforms because that is bureaucracy and organization and information flow and authorities, all of those wicked parts. And so yeah, to me, stealth is the more disruptive one because it challenges the paradigm on all those at the same time. Whereas stealth? stealth, no, uh, no. Hypersonic. Hyper so speed. Yeah. So if you have something that's going Mach 10 and it's not, it's obviously 10 times faster than a good cruise missile. That's 10 times less amount of time to make a decision. And especially when you get into maneuvering, the maneuvering aspect of hypersonics, which is what makes them different than ballistic missiles for 40 years, you know, if something launched within, with some math, within a reasonable amount of time, you had a pretty good idea where it was going to hit in 20 minutes. But with a hypersonic, you don't know where it's going to hit in 20 seconds. And so that, that becomes orders of magnitude harder to defend against if you really don't know where it's going. Again, you can have a, an idea, but if it's maneuvering and when you talk about completing like a, a hit to kill intercept, the maneuvering part of a hypersonic is where it becomes really tough much tougher than closing a kill chain with stealth. That's uh, I think that's a pretty sound argument. <laughs> Do you think the research and development priorities reflect that? There's enough money being thrown at hypersonics. It seems we have a bunch of programs. and Yeah, I want to say the last count that I saw across the DOD was 75, 75 or that's 80 right. hypersonics programs. We, we, I think the DOD gets it. And they're like, this we need to get after this because in the process of developing our own hypersonics, we will figure out where the vulnerabilities in these, in this equipment, in this technology is, and that will inform our countermeasures. And so I think we're going to be developing them both in, in parallel and playing off of each other by doing a blood red team, our own red team, if you will. So blue team, red team, blue for hypersonics, uh, offense and defense. That's definitely going to be a factor. So it looks like 6.6 .6 billion to develop and field multi-surface, multi-domain offensive long-range fire. Includes a bunch of other stuff other than just hypersonics, including Jazz ground launch cruise missile, SM6. And you can debate whether SM6 it should be included there or not in terms of hypersonic, but it goes fast. But yeah, that's what, maybe half? Like if we look at the hypersonic portfolio in terms of investment in RDT&E, that's probably 
half of what we spend on the F-35 Enterprise in a year. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, it's a weapon. So whether it's the ground launch, air launch, sea launched, there's definitely integration opportunities and how that gets integrated and the concepts to employ it. There's a lot more disruption to be had. This one's kind of interesting. Exclusive interview. Lockheed CEO wants his company to connect all the Pentagon's weapons. There's a lot of ways to get there, but I think the only feasible way is to literally start connecting individual platforms together within a technology roadmap. I really want to drive our 5G.mil architecture. That architecture is going to be open so others can tie into it. But I think since we have a really strong platform positions with all the services and all the domains, Lockheed Martin can be a real pathfinder for the industry here. So basically, it should be pretty obvious, right? Like, Lockheed does provide a bunch of like weapon systems throughout the military. They have that domain expertise in, in terms of those platforms. And in many cases, they have proprietary data rights. So they almost have like insider baseball of here to be able to start connecting them and do this JADC too. So does Lockheed have, would it just make the most sense to outsource this to Lockheed? Or do you think the, the service is kind of current path of exploration with small companies and taking that on in-house is, is the way to go? Oh, this is the, this is the big one. Wow. Where to go with this? All right. I'll say that the Pentagon also would like to connect all of its weapons. Again, when you, when you flip it and you said, who, who does not want to connect everything together? Raise your hand. Okay. No one got it. So everyone wants this, right? This would be the Holy grail. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a lot of ways to get there as the quote says, but at the end of the day, we're never going to get there. If the government doesn't own the architecture, we have, we have to be able to own it. And that way we don't have to worry about vendor rights or IP lock or any of that stuff. And we can proliferate it across all of the, uh, the standards like link 16, like that is a standard. And, and we did that as a mill standard to get everyone on board with it. It wasn't a US thing. And that's why we can have allies and partners on a link 16 data link network with us. So we can share information back and forth. And so the same thing happens with, with something like this. If you want to connect everything together, it's not just going to be one standard, but it'll be a standard of standards for a network of networks, for a system of systems, but it starts at, at the standard and, and we don't really have a standard. And I'll say that there was a, there's a really good conversation about how there's not even a office in charge of that because, because everything is set up because the way the budget's built off of the PECs, then we have PEMs that manage the PECs, and then we have the SPOs who execute the PEMs wishes to a point, but it's very stovepipe, the entire process from the, the way that the, the sausage is made in the, in the sausage factory. So I'd say that, uh, yeah, we all want to connect it. Uh, we definitely need a roadmap, but we also need someone that's in charge of it. So it'll be curious to see what the joint warfighting concept uh, that the joint staff is, is getting ready to roll out that has pretty much like a, what they think JADC2 is actually going to be. Uh, so no more talking points. Let's actually get down and figure out what the plan is. And it's, so I'm really curious to see what architecture plans or pathways are in that. Have you heard anything? No. Yeah. You heard Lieutenant General Crawl is uh, in charge of that at the J6. And mostly it's just been like, we will come up with a plan. <laughs> but I think they're trying to go in, in the way that you were saying. And there's been a lot of backlash to contractors owning a lot of the IP for like critical interoperability issues. I, I would expect the same way, but it's also, I would hope it goes towards commercial, you know, what's proliferating in the commercial world rather than the government owns and then has to maintain it. Because ultimately it seems okay, even if the government owns it and then it's not commercially relevant or based on those types of standards, then it, like you're just going to have to get the Lockheeds of the world to go out and execute it anyway. Especially if you get into some of the stuff that's uh, like vendor, the vendor proprietary stuff, some of the one example, like some of the vendor specific um, IP that they have, it's written in code that you know, no one goes to college for anymore. It's ancient and no one uh, would want to go work on that to go learn hieroglyphics and, and some old language and where they could go do something else that's much more exciting and relevant to other industries. And so I think it's really important that as we build an architecture that we build a foundation that has uh, transferability of skills and capabilities across the commercial sector, as well as defense. Yeah, definitely. Right, so the last one we'll do here is submarine industry is growing less fragile, but still needs stability going into SSNX increased repair work from defense news where SSNX is timed, where SSNX is timed right. 
we're coming off of that Columbia design team, that very robust design team. We're going to capitalize on that design team and give that stability. We're going to go, we're going to go at such a time when the Columbia is ramping down in production and we'll be ramping up SSNX. So I guess here, Columbia class submarine is going to be eating up a, a big chunk of the, the design and, and submarine and shipbuilding budget. And then they basically want to have a follow-on program that's probably something like a recapitalization of the Virginia class attack submarine right after that and use the same types of people. But this thing, it always happens, right? Like the government has this one major program to win them all. And then it, because it's just basically necked everything down into one, it needs to be able to keep those people steady. So you need to be able to ramp down one program and immediately ramp up another program timed precisely. And the Air Force is probably the leader in doing this in terms of historically. So it's just kind of funny. Like we want this stability. We want to be able to predict, but I feel first you always have problems. And then there's that kind of gap period where you don't, you're not sure who's going to win or the material's not ready to ramp up to that rate in, in terms of detailed design and construction. But then also you get into that issue of if you want it to be predictable, then it has to be just like an incremental change on what you've already been doing. Because if you're doing something radical, then it can't be stable or predictable. So it has no place in this. Yeah, that's exactly like right. Plan. If you want to do right. something that's a game-changing design, it's going to have issues. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take longer. It's going to have more issues than you expect. It's going to cost more money. And it's going to, it's going to ultimately, it's not about a workforce gap. You're going to have a warfighter gap. It's, yeah. Would you, I'm not a sub guy. You see the same thing. If you fast forward in the air force, like five, 10 years, when you see that right now, say F it's, it's getting its legs under it and it's getting some capabilities. We get into the mid 2020s and you go, okay, we're putting our money in gadget. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We just got F-35 up and running. Like we need to keep putting money into it to keep, keep modernizing. It's a, it is a, that is a continual bill for any weapons program, but at some point there's a transition. And I was saying F-5 and NGAD are uh, synonymous because they're not, but you compete over limited resources and limited throughput for industry in particular for ships. Aircraft is a little different because yeah, the government owns a lot of the production plants and we let our vendors use them. So that's, what's slightly different. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd love someone to do like a historical study and be like, where the government planned a nice ramp down of this production and ramp up of that, of the follow on, it went smoothly <laughs> and according to plan. I'd like to see what the, the stats are on, on that happening. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Actually, the last one we'll, we'll do here real quick. How China's flying submarine drone could change the way sea battles are fought. This is actually from the China Morning Post, but via Yahoo. Water is 800 times more dense than air and stickier. Small drones developed in Western countries must rotate their blades at slower speeds while underwater or risk snapping. But the Chinese drone used two kinds of blades, one which is designed to spin 3,600 times per minute in water to generate a powerful thrust. China, for instance, is developing transmedium drones, which are these ones that can go in air and underwater, to be released by submarines hundreds of meters under the water and for airborne surveillance, communication, or attack. China offering up some interesting alternatives. Again, it seems like this, as well as some of the others, like the shark drones that they've been doing, there's like tons of these drone ideas. None in of itself is just like this huge quantum leap of capability, but they're all very interesting, have very particular use cases, and might have a trajectory to make big impacts in 5, 10, however many years time. Yeah. What a good one to end it on. This one's great. I think when people see the stuff in the news, oh my God, what is going on? But if you actually dig into it, it was a, a university project. So a bunch of college kids basically did a tech project. And so they built this uh, three pound drone with a, a different rotor on it and it flew for 20 minutes and it bounced in around the water. And then there's a really good press release about it. Yeah. It's not the first one that's, uh, that's, there's some really good uh, videos on YouTube of drones, like quadcopter drones flying into the water, going underwater, flying, and then coming back out. So those aren't new. This one is just, it has a different rotor on it. Yeah. It's just a, it's a science project from a kid and somehow it got picked up as a national news. Not a thing. Well, if maybe they transition it. The one thing China is, is good at is basically commanding people to, <laughs> to do the nation's national security biddings. Yeah. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah, No Opinion actually had a pretty good article on this. And I was talking about this, uh, I think like a week or two ago with Matt. And the, the idea that first, it looks like they're destroying their own tech companies. And so my view was like, 
maybe just the, the Chinese uh, Communist Party is just seeing the kind of free market being a threat to itself. And so it wants everyone to work with the state-owned enterprises. And, you know, that might be the end of their kind of entrepreneurialism. Of course, they're, they're going to get a bunch more productivity over years out of what they've done, but it was like the beginning of the end. But no opinions kind of view was maybe they just look at stuff like Google and Facebook as not innovative and rent extracting. And they're just trying to force people into these kinds of like more deep tech projects and more national security intensive things. And yeah, so- like, yeah, this concept more, you know, it's interesting, more compelling. It can only fly for 20 minutes. Like if it had a ability to land on uh, in rough seas, so it had some kind of inflatable thing and a pop out solar panel, it could recharge and then keep going. And so you could deploy this thing and it could leapfrog itself over the course of a few days to get somewhere without being detected because it's such a small signature moving just a little bit at a time. So that would be more compelling to me if I was going to do something disruptive, not necessarily going underwater with it, but being able to rest on the water to, uh, to recharge using the sun or using the current. Yeah, that would that'd be interesting. I'm sure they can, they would be able, like if it's just a couple of kids, if they put some thought into it, I'm sure they could get more yeah, endurance exactly. and stuff out of it. But that'll be coming out in the news next month from China. So. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. One of the problems there is just going to be like, if you're launching them from a sub and they do all this cool stuff, then how do you communicate back to that sub? But apparently transmission of information underwater, easiest thing in the world. Yeah. Yep. It's, there's definitely a technological challenge that, that has to be overcome. All right, cool. That's what we got for you this week. Mike Benitez, thanks for joining me. Man, thanks, Eric. You put me through the ringer. <laughs> all right, take care. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.